you must also be prepared. Certainly that's a message that Ohio State did not get. <laughs> prepared for what? You must also be prepared for at an hour you do not expect the Son of Man will come. This is ultimately about judgment of the people of Israel for rejecting their Savior. And Jesus also here, and Christians have understood that Jesus is talking about the final judgment. And so as we begin Advent, we begin with this sober realization that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again in the end, but we also celebrate him coming at Christmas. Now it's difficult for us as Christians to talk about weighty matters or difficult matters such as judgment. Because without us understanding the context of judgment, it can be hard for us to accept. And certainly hard for people who don't know Christianity to accept. In fact, I would venture to say that most things in Christianity make very little sense outside of the context. The context of what we believe Christianity to be all about. Think about how important context is. Let's just say, for example, I come home from the office and I find Father Miguel watching a movie. And let's just say, for example, in this movie, I see zombies killing each other. This actually happened. <laughs> what is happening? Like, I, I have no idea. Why is this guy so intense? What's going on? Why are these zombies? And so I don't actually know what's happening. I don't know the context. I don't know the beginning. I don't know who the main character is. I don't know what the problem is. I don't know how to get there to solve the problem. I don't understand any of this stuff. Or to perhaps take a different example, perhaps you like the Marvel Universe. Perhaps you, you kind of enter into the Marvel Universe movie, you know, series in Infinity War, and you see this large purple guy with an oversized chin kind of trying to kill everybody with a snap of his fingers. You're probably like, what is happening? I have no idea. You see, the context of Christianity is our story. It's the story of who Jesus is what he's done for us, and how he's asking us to respond. You see, it is by virtue of the story that we know who we are, right? We know where we're going, and we know how to get there. And it's in the context of the story that we understand all of these things, because it's the story that gives us the, the capacity to understand and to enter into so that we can play our part in responding to what God has done for us. When people hear this story in a compelling way, it changes their lives. But a lot of times, we don't hear this story in a compelling way. I remember when I was in, uh, um, at Grand Valley State University, one of my family members left the church. And he left the church, and, and he told me recently, or he told me at then, he said he left the church because he found Jesus. What does it mean to find Jesus out of the, outside of the church? Isn't he here? Of course, we have Jesus, but for whatever reason, he didn't get it. And someone in a different church explained to him the great story of salvation in such a way that he responded and gave his life to the Lord, and it changed his entire life. It was a profound moving transformation for him. And it's important for us to recognize that it is precisely in this, the preaching of the gospel, the story, getting people to respond, that's what evangelization is. The church talks about evangelization. We need to evangelize. What are we specifically talking about? We're talking about telling the story of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and, and, and ultimately how he's asking us to respond, leading people to make a decision to surrender their lives to him in faith, to become his disciple, to learn from him, to live like him, so that we can experience the fullness of salvation in heaven. 
Every single parish exists to evangelize, and we take that very seriously here at St. Pat's. Some of you may know that we had in August a kind of an event for leaders in the parish uh, in which we kind of unveiled our pastoral plan of how is it that we make disciples here. And a lot of this stuff we're already doing. And we were going to talk about it this fall, but that was kind of sidetracked by Proposition 3, or Proposal 3. And so we're going to kind of talk about this in the winter. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to kind of recapture a kind of a biblical way of looking at reality, to recapture the story that each of us are in so that we can not only make sense of our lives, but that we can truly be able to explain that to others. And so what Father Miguel and I are going to be doing throughout Advent, we're going to be breaking down the good news of the gospel in four parts. And for this particular homily series, we're going to be following the framework in some of the language that Father John Ricardo uses in Acts 29. And I explain why a little bit more in the bulletin, but essentially he makes it very memorable. Because there's actually four parts of our story. One is the goodness of creation. The second is sin and its consequences, when sin broke into the world and brought death into the world. Three is, is God, what, it, what has God done uh, with, in response to sin and death? And number four is, what is our response to what he's done? And so what he does is he breaks these down and he uses four words. Created, captured, rescued, response. Created, captured, rescued, response. Now you can repeat after me. Created, captured, rescued, response. And so in this, as we go through this, kind of allow yourselves to hear the, the, the words and how we actually understand our story. Because what we're primarily doing this, we're doing this for two reasons. One is so that each of us being overwhelmed by the goodness of God can make a decision to surrender our lives to Jesus in faith and to be his disciple. And for most of us, we're going to do that again. But for some of us, this might be the first time in which we sincerely give our lives over to him. But the second reason why we're doing this is so that we can, we can capture, if you may, and understand the framework of the gospel so that we understand our own life in light of the big story. But also we understand how we can explain this to others. This morning, I just want to quickly go over created. The question that Father John asks when we think about creation is, why is there something rather than nothing? If you look around at creation, the universe, the stars, you look around and you think of your own life, why is there something that exists rather than nothing? This is ultimately a question that science can't answer. Science may be able to tell us how is it that the, that the world kind of uh, operates in, the, in a physical way, Right, the physical sciences, it might be able to help us understand how, but it certainly cannot tell us why. This is, properly speaking, a religious question, or it can actually be approached in a philosophical way as well. But this is a religious question that has its answer in God's self-revelation to us. I mean, what we see in the scriptures in the book of Genesis is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why there's something rather than nothing. That there was a being who created the earth. And so before we talk and break open about this, this book of Genesis, it's really important for us to remember what kind of book this is. Especially the first 11 chapters. The book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters is not giving us a literal scientific account of how everything specifically happened in the beginning. That's not its genre. And when we approach scripture outside of the genre in which it is written... We have wild misinterpretations of what God is trying to convey to us. 
In fact, what we see in the first 11 chapters, as scholars call, this is the genre of historical myth. Myth meaning not falsehood, but story. And so you can think of it in terms of like inspired poetry, that God is trying to communicate and, and convey theological truths about our relationship with God, about creation, about our relationship with each other. These truths are historical and they're real, but they're conveyed in a certain language that helps us understand the story. When we don't know this, we can be, have this tendency to try to interpret scripture according to how it's not meant to be said. We can miss all sorts of things. Just as we wouldn't interpret uh, scientific literature in the same vein as we would interpret perhaps prose or the Lord of the Rings or something like that, we need to understand the context of what kind of scripture we're, we're talking about here. My, my, brother, um, is, my other brother is in um, gastroenterology, and he, when he was studying at a, a university, I won't say which university it was, he was studying biology, and this professor kind of, kind of was inveighing his opinion about all sorts of things at the beginning, saying, you know what, Christians get it wrong. Christians don't understand their idea of creation is so unscientific. In fact, Christians believe that the earth was created in seven 24-hour days. And we know by creation, we know that science shows us that creation happened over millions of years and there's something that it totally contradicts the scriptures. And so I don't understand this Christianity thing, but I can tell you what, it's not scientific. My brother came to me and he's like, what's the deal with this guy? I said, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Um, we as Catholics do not believe that God created in seven 24-hour days. That's not the point of the, of, of the, new te- of the, uh, the biblical revelation there. Right, And so when we don't get it right, we can have all sorts of false kind of conclusions about what God is trying to say to us. And so as a result, what we begin to see is that in the ancient Near East, all the surrounding cultures, and especially in the Mesopotamian area, era, or area around, there, around the two rivers there, they had creation myths to help explain the bigger questions of reality. They, wanted, they had creation myths to explain the relationship between them and the gods and the world and, and everything. These creation myths are very different from the, the, the stories in the book of Genesis. In fact, the book of Genesis and the, um, is actually created and written to make a distinction between how other people who didn't know God in the covenant saw the world and saw God and how they saw him. So they're intentionally using a particular genre to explain the difference. And it's really important for us to realize that the book of Genesis is utterly unique with regard to the understanding of God and the world and human, humanity. And let me kind of summarize the difference. So for those, um, who are, those, those cultures around uh, the Jews, this is kind of the summary of the, some of the things that you find in their, in their creation myths. One, you find that there are many gods, and the gods aren't really even in control. They're kind of like given over to some sort of fate. Right? You see that the gods are violent, they're lustful, they're greedy, and they're capricious. And the gods create men in order to enslave them so that they can rest. And we see, according to these creation myths, that women have no dignity and were only actually created for two purposes, for the lust of men and for children. And so you see, in contradistinction with the cultures around them, I'm sorry, in, in, in distinction, is that according to these creation myths, Right? Creation is not good. The gods are not good. Human beings have no inherent dignity. And ultimately speaking, there's no meaning to life. 
And so as a result, there's just meaninglessness and despair. And so it makes sense then why some people who have a worldview such as this about creation would fall into a kind of a, um, let's just maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Now notice the distinction of how God reveals himself in biblical revelation in Genesis. This is what we hear in our creation story, uh, what we believe about God. There's only one God, and he is good, and he's utterly complete in himself. And this God is more powerful than anything we can comprehend because he creates everything out of nothing, effortlessly and generously. In fact, he creates out of love because nothing in itself was necessary in itself. And everything he created was good. And at the pinnacle of creation, he created man and woman who is in his image and likeness. And together, they, only together do they fully reflect the goodness of God. And they, they reflect God in the world. And he gives to these, this first couple, the first humans, the command to be fruitful and multiply, which means that sexuality is a good thing that God creates uh, in order to help uh, man and woman share in his love and to be ordered toward children. We see that God creates um, man and woman to be stewards of creation. They're, they're not at enmity with creation. They're meant to care for and entrust creation to them. And we also see, ultimately speaking, that men and women were created for a relationship with God and with each other. And that at the beginning, they had a beautiful communion with God that ultimately at one point was broken. In the creation story of Genesis, we see that the purpose and reason of creation was so all of us might share in God's life and to be with him forever. This is ultimately the difference between the Jewish understanding of God and the surrounding nations. And this is what we believe as Christians. Now what I want to do is I want to pull out a couple of these points and emphasize them a little bit. Number one, so we're made in God's image and likeness. And we're primarily made in his image and likeness in the sense that we reflect the dignity of who God is by virtue of our reason and our freedom. That because we have the capacity to think and to reason, we're very different from the rest of creation. We have consciousness. We're able to reason and we're able to actually make decisions, that is to love. This is really important because there's a certain kind of divine stamp that is in us. Now, in the story of creation, what do we, how do we understand freedom? Right? Freedom is the, the capacity to, to live as we should, to live according to our identity, to how we are made, to live in such a way that we're fully alive in God and in each other. Freedom is not defined as doing whatever you want, which is a rather self-referential and narcissistic understanding of freedom that unfortunately we see around our culture today. Freedom exists for love. And it is when we love that we fully image God in this world. And that's the second thing that, that we, we can consider regarding our dignity. It is precisely when we live according to who we are and we love that we, in a particular way, witness and image God in the world. This is really important because when people see us, they can see an image of God. And if we're living in a good way, that image is very clear. If we're loving and forgiving, if we're merciful, it's a very clear image. And this is one of the reasons why the saints are so attractive to us. When we know someone who's holy, who's someone who's living out their faith, it's, there's an attraction. We can see a certain glimpse of God in them. But this is also why when we choose not to live accordingly and we turn away from God and we sin, 
we mar his image and it's harder for people to see God. One of the things that I often will say, and I've sometimes said this at, at, at uh, weddings, is that couples in a particular way image God in the world. And it's when people aren't seeing image bearers in their life that it's harder for them to see God. And it's actually harder for people to believe in God. And just scratch a little bit beneath the surface of a militant atheist and you'll find that some image bearer in his or her life failed them deeply. In fact, there's been psychological studies of some of the most famous atheists in the last 100 years and it's precisely most of them have had serious issues with their father who is supposed to be an image of God in their life. So the truth is, is that God created us in his image and likeness, but he created us so that we might be loved and to love him in return. That's the point of it all. He created us out of love and he's inviting us to love him in return. This is so critical for us to get because of how special we really are. Think about it. You don't need to exist. You didn't create yourself. You didn't choose yourself to exist because that's logically impossible. You don't need to exist. And yet God from the foundation of the world chose you to live in this time right now. He chose you to live out of his sheer goodness. That according to how we understand it, every single person is a gift from God. This is truly remarkable and should cause us to wonder how the God of creation, the God who founded the heavens and the earth, chose me. He chose you to exist. Father John Ricardo is struck by the fact that the author of Genesis says that the God, uh, he made the sun and the moon, and he also made the stars. Think about how powerful that is. God made the stars. Right? The stars, the expansive nature of the universe is incomprehensible to us. It's actually hard to fathom. As so he talks about like, the wonder that we can have about thinking about how we were created by God and are loved by God who created all of the stars. And so he talks about the stars. The, the universe, according to at recent estimates, is 46 billion light years across. And that's what we know of. It could be actually much bigger than that. 46 billion light years across. A light year is the distance that light can travel in a year. So it's about 6 trillion miles. It's 46 billion times 6 trillion. That's kind of mind-boggling. So in our, in our universe, I'm sorry, in our galaxy, we live in the, the Milky Way, right? There are 100 billion stars, and the sun is just one of them. And there are 100 billion galaxies, each of which have 100 billion stars. Think about how expansive that is. In fact, it's kind of like staggering. And so like, how do we even approach this? And I was a math major for a time, and this is like the amount of zeros this is. It's crazy how big this is, how many stars there are. And so there's an article um, not too long ago who had a, um, a statistic. It said, there are 10 times more stars in the universe than there are grains of the sand in the world's deserts and beaches. There are a lot of deserts and beaches and you know how small a grain of sand is. Another astrophysicist explains the magnitude of these numbers by saying, imagine a sandcastle where every grain of sand is a star in the universe. How big would the sandcastle have to be in order to replicate the size of the universe in terms of stars? He said it would be five miles long, five miles wide, and five miles high. We are very, very small in the large um, nature of the universe. He, Father Ricardo ends, or he also says this, there are 70 sextillion stars in the universe. 
just to kind of give you a sense of how big that number is, if you were to count to a million with counting one per second, one time per second, or a million seconds would be 11.5 days. If you were to count to a billion every second, it would take you 31 years to count to a billion. If you were to have a count to a trillion once per second, it would take you 31,000 years. If you were to count to a, to a, a quadrillion, it would take you 31 million years. If you were to count to a sextillion going up, uh, you'd have to count a quadrillion 10 million times. And then you'd have to do that 70 more times. So this is just crazy. But here's, here's my point. This God who made the universe, the God who's good, made you and loves you personally. This should cause us to go to our knees because that very God is holding us in existence right now. He's loving us right now. He's laboring to give himself to us right now. So understanding that, do you think God is anxious or worried about the problems in our life? No, he has us. And so thinking about this, we need to ask ourselves the question, why in the world is everything so messed up? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. How we as Christians understand what happened to ruin this. I'm going to end with this quote. Each of us is the thought of God. Each of us is willed. Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. <laughs>